first, let's talk dollars and cents and budgets and money and oh, a big day in BC, certainly always. Richard Zussman, it seems like perennially we connect on the pre-day and budget day. I'm going to be tracking you down uh, <laughs> just after the lockup ends tomorrow, but want to preview today. Welcome and thank you for doing this. I'm here at Ruth King Elementary, Jody, in Langford, and on the menu is meatloaf, potato salad, green salad, and broccoli, uh, all being served by the Minister of Finance, Katrina Conroy, as she gets ready for her first budget tomorrow. She's giving out blueberry muffins right now. I'll make sure that I get one, and I, I send it over the water for you. So Let's you do it. Ruth, Ruth King <laughs> does it here in Langford in terms of their uh, blueberry muffins. Oh, man, a little meatloaf. Will there be meat on the bone for those waiting to see what? Premier David Eby will bring in his first budget. What do we expect? Yeah, there's going to be some substantial meat on that bone. And I think one of the big focuses here is going to be around mental health and addictions. We know uh, the Treasury Board has approved more than a billion dollars uh, for a treatment plan to increase beds, access to beds, uh, beds in more places to ensure that those that need uh, treatment and support uh, for drug addiction uh, can get it. And we are anticipating at least some information tomorrow about exactly what that plan looks like. Uh, the rest of it are going to be hitting on those core ideals. We're going to see money for housing. We're going to see money for the affordability crisis. We're going to see a big whack of cash for the health care crisis as EB gets past his first 100 days in office and starts marking uh, the next sort of focus, which will be the next year as we head through 2023. So budgets are either a pullback or a plow forward. Do we expect a plow forward? We've seen David Eby since he has taken office from uh, John Horgan after his retirement uh, from politics. David Eby has been very busy spending the surplus dollars of last year's budget. Do you anticipate, while some are saying now is the time to pull back, obviously the more fiscally conservative uh, platformed BC Liberal Party uh, would be like, now is the time to pull back and slow down at but will Premier Eby look to just continue to plow forward as he has shown himself to do, to want to do in those first hundred days? Jody, this has been a wild time. I've never seen anything quite like this budget period because the government is looking at this massive surplus. And there's a law in the books here that if that surplus is not spent by the end of March of this year, it goes to pay down the debt. And the NDP has committed that they are going to spend that money, taxpayer money, on the priorities of British Columbians. And we saw it just through the weekend, a doubling of the BC affordability credit that more than 85% of British Columbians get. $500 million to bail out BC ferries to prevent huge fare increases there. This money is being spent now in real time, and there mm-hmm. may even be things, Jody, that are announced post-budget as part of last year's spend leading up to that March 31st deadline. Then there's plotting a course forward. So the budget will lay out the next three years. We will get a sense largely about you know, how the money is going to be spent moving forward. And we expect, with what we know about the economy, that we will see potential deficits in the budget. So it does both the things you mentioned. It's plowing forward spending this year's surplus, but then reining things in as we head towards, you know, this, these economic headwinds that the economists are predicting uh, globally, but also uh, reaching us here in British Columbia. 
We're with Richard Sussman, of course, Global News reporter based at the B.C. legislature and uh, getting the preview for the budget that drops tomorrow here in B.C., the 2023 budget. And Richard, B.C.'s economy is one of the strongest in Canada, despite all of the challenges that we've seen across this nation. The government uh, continuing to invest in areas, as you said, and trying to give some relief where so many British Columbians have been feeling it. Um, Beyond the health care, the housing, I want to say beyond the obvious, but that that would be uh, oversimplification of what has been remarkably difficult times for so many when it comes to housing, health care, mental health, addiction. Um, What other areas might we see uh, some relief for British Columbians in this budget? Yeah, we've been caught off guard on some of these things before that we see some of these items that come forward from uh, interest groups and advocacy groups, and then they get put into the budget and we don't expect them. One of the things we've heard a lot about is around uh, with inflation pressures hitting everyone, increasing uh, the poverty rate, the disability rate, potentially at the rate of inflation, that those who make the least in this province have been suffering more than others. So increasing that could be something on the table. And we know that small businesses have been so profoundly impacted by inflationary pressures. There's been a call from those about changing uh, the formula around the employer's health tax. So that could have, yes, it's bureaucratic and numbers moving around, but it could have a real impact on those with payrolls around the 750000 to million dollar range. Right now, the exemption goes right up to $500,000, Jody, and it looks like the government may be interested in exploring ways to support those small businesses because healthy small businesses mean healthy communities. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett, continuing our discussion with good friend Richard Zussman, global news reporter based at the B.C. Legislature. It's the budget preview with Zussman, and we will, of course, be connecting with you tomorrow on this, Richard, but want to tap in your expertise your ear is always to the ground and and prior to the break we were talking about sort of big ticket items and certainly what has always felt like a smaller piece of the big budget uh, puzzle if you will has been the municipal piece but with the premier eb government and we'll point to the two larger jurisdictions in British Columbia, in Vancouver and Surrey, there's been ever more sort of involvement at the municipal level. And there really has to have been, particularly in Vancouver, with regard to infrastructure and housing and some of the extreme challenges that have been seen in Vancouver over the last number of years. What do you expect uh, to see in the budget uh, where that is concerned, where it gets into the municipal piece? Yeah, so, you know, we know that there are multiple levels of government and they all work together. And whenever we see investment for things like housing and healthcare and education, they have a disproportionate impact on the biggest cities. That's where our populations live. We are going to continue to see capital investments in Metro Vancouver that includes the building of new schools, the, the continued investment around the future of the Massey, the Patello, big infrastructure uh, but I don't expect we're going to see any fiscal help for property tax increases. So that could be something hypothetically that a municipality could say to the province, you know, we're experiencing these unprecedented pressures and costs. We need your help. Don't expect the province to come forward and say, oh, well, here's a lump sum of cash because you decided to tell your residents that they're going to get uh, 9.5% property tax increase. Or in the case of Surrey, much higher than that because of the police transition. But the investment is going to be catered towards, yes, the entirety of the province, 
But we know that this government has made its huge priorities on urban issues. So there will be pocketbook support for those living in Metro Vancouver. Could ease some of the pressure on municipalities. Transit could be one of those things, Jody. We've heard a big ask uh, from uh, Brad West and, and Translate like Mayor's Council that they want uh, support funding from the provincial government. Uh, we could get that in the budget. The Minister Fleming, when I spoke to him about it a few weeks ago, said the money will be there from the province. Uh, we'll have to see that officially in the budget tomorrow. And Richard, given the piece of that puzzle that we've seen over this last year and a bit now, um, what we saw, what happened to the highways with the atmospheric rivers, what we've seen with wildfires, what we've seen with climate change and the reaction to the emergency that we are seeing with the weather involved piece, how it is slamming into the West Coast in ways that none really could have budgeted for. Will there perhaps be a piece that that we see grow in that regard? Yeah, and I think there will be, we've had a a commitment here from the province around uh, climate crises. And this is going to be one of those places where we will continue to see commitments from the provincial government. I I remember the last few budgets, Jody, that there's been substantial uh, changes to the way in which they plan for natural disasters, for fires, for floods. Uh, And I expect that that emergency preparedness piece will continue to be a priority focus of this government uh, as it works also through that rebuilding funding, as it it focuses in on what uh, that looks like in communities like Abbotsford that have been so incredibly hard hit. One of the things I really love about your reporting, Richard, and I mean this, this is not pumping tires, is that you always call it like you see it and you report it as it happens and you ask the questions that sometimes uh, others might be like, where is he going with this? And yet you you bring to the fore what the public needs in order to understand this bigger picture. Obviously, budgets are incredibly complex. And last year in BC's budget, the forecast was to post a $5.5 billion with a B deficit. But then, lo and behold... Uh, things shifted and it was a $5.7 billion surplus. Like, how do we go into these budgets in a 2023, through a 2023 lens and know even how things might unfold day to day, week to week, month to month? Like, that is a huge shift. And I remember you reporting on that be, and, and, and taking us on the journey of how we got from such a deficit to such a surplus. Do you have expectations or what are your... What's your number crunching say about what's to come? Yeah, I'm no economist, but I get to play one once a year on the radio and television. I love it. But, I love it. You know, in talking, in talking to experts and our economists, yeah. this year was, um, to put it mildly, unpredictable. And mm-hmm. a lot of what we've seen in terms of the surplus is contingent on one-time financial support coming from the federal government through pandemic recovery funding. And the CRA did not collect uh, or collected too much income tax in essence and is then giving it back to the province to distribute back to British Columbia. And that's what made this financial situation so unique. The expectation is that BC's economy continues to be strong, that there's a commitment here to spend, and, and there's less worry from governments at all levels to run deficits than there have been. Municipalities can't run deficits, but the province and the federal government can, and they continue to do so. And I would expect that we may see a deficit tomorrow, Jody, but like we saw last year, that could change very, very quickly. And that then gives financial flexibility to spend. 
there's contingencies built into budgets, uh, but I think this province is, is more interested in putting that money back into the pockets. Yes, make sure there's fiscal prudence, make sure there's contingencies if things turn. But our yeah. economic footing in BC is so strong, the fundamentals, the foundations are so strong that there's an opportunity here to reinvest. You know, this is our money. We have, this is not government doing a great job, you know, investing our cash. This is our money that's been, you know, put through the system, through taxation and the strong economy. And uh, British Columbians deserve that money to come back in ways that they can use it. So what that looks like, we'll get that clearer picture tomorrow. We're going to get that picture tomorrow with you right here on the Jill Bennett Show. Richard, I'll look forward to chatting with you then. Thanks for this. All right. Thanks, Jody. Appreciate it. Jody Vance with you. Thanks for tuning in. Looking forward to this next conversation, as I always do when I have Dr. Sylvain Charlebois join us on the program. He is the director of Agri-Foods Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And we need to talk about inflation coming down, cooling somewhat, if you will, and yet food costs still skyrocketing. There is a lot of, go- a lot of blame game going on. And Sylvain, I'm always glad to have your perspective on this. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so let's get to the blame game specifically. I mean, Twitter's been blowing up with, you know, uh, Loblaws in the crosshairs or Galen Weston at the crosshairs. What do you what do you make of that? Uh, He's clearly the most hated CEO in the country for sure. Well, he's out there. Uh, He's part of of uh, Loblaw's uh, PR stunt to promote uh, no-name branded products and President's Choice as well. So uh, everyone knows him. Very few actually would know of the names of other grocers like Michael Medline, uh, who's heading Sobe's, and Eric Laflèche, uh, the CEO of, of Metro. But uh, again, Wesson is clearly the target. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we all deal with grocers And most Canadians don't necessarily appreciate the complexities of food supply chains. So it's quite natural to blame the one company we interact with very well. And and the person that we see most days on television. So I'm not entirely surprised. The other thing is that most Canadians aren't necessarily financially literate. They can't go online, look at financial statements and understand that Really, margins have remained the same for several years. Uh, they just hear politicians, they hear certain individuals say that there's exaggerations of abuse, and, and a lot of Canadians are believing it. It's an easy way to lean in on the blame game for sure. Find, of course, it's got to be greed. Of course, it's got to be corporate greed. So it must be that person's corporate greed. I want to get to the, I, I want you to educate us a bit on the food. Uh, chain, as you referenced there. But before we go there, can you give the simplest possible answer to how we're seeing big companies like those you mentioned, Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, um, and and their reporting of, of earnings and their profits are almost exactly the same as what the increase feels like to the end consumer? I think there's a lot of jumping to that conclusion because there are record profits being raked in. Oh, money-wise, they're doing very well. I'm not a, I'm not a shareholder of any of these companies, but uh, right. if I w- was allowed to ethically, I would. These companies are performing very well, money-wise. When we look at percentages, they remain the same. So that's mm. one thing that needs to be cleared out here. The other thing, 
I mean, Loblaws last week uh, released uh, its uh, Q4 numbers. And when you actually look at food sales specifically, food sales are up 8.4% year to year. That's actually below the food inflation rate, by the way, of 10.4, which means that that they're not generating as much revenues. Uh, revenues coming from food uh, aren't necessarily following food inflation. That that should tell you something. The other thing that we need to keep in mind is that the food inflation rate in Canada is actually one of the lowest among G7 countries. We're number three after the U.S. and, and Japan. However, and this is a big however, when you look at operational margins, so how much money companies are making in Canada, grocers are making in Canada, minus taxes and minus, uh, uh, minus uh, uh, marketing fees, you actually see figures in Canada are double of what they are in the U.S., so they're making more money in Canada versus, say, Kroger and Albertsons in the U.S., which right. means that the market in Canada is not all that competitive. That really is a problem. Hmm. Okay, that is a piece of this puzzle for sure. We're with the food professor, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University. And could you give us the Coles notes, the lame person's terms for how our food chain works and is being impacted, how world events are truly paying, playing a role, in fact, in how much more we're spending at the grocery store? Well, you got 25,000 products in a grocery store, which one you want? Well, <laughs> let's go back to last week's report from Statistics Canada. Three categories really push prices higher over the last uh, several weeks. Uh, let's start with veggies, vegetables, California, climate change, uh, especially you guys in BC, you import a lot of products from, from California and you couldn't because of a drought and, and a virus in California, so you have to go somewhere else to get celery and, uh, and leafy greens. That's why they got more expensive. The other category that went up, bakery. That's a grain issue. Ukraine. We've been talking a lot about Ukraine. Ukraine actually has made commodity prices much higher. The last one is dairy. Well, dairy prices at Farmgate are regulated in Canada. Cane Dairy Commission decided to increase Farmgate milk prices for the third time in one year in February. And that's why there's a lot of dairy products that have actually jumped up in the last few weeks. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I I picked yeah. up a I, I picked up a pound of butter, looked at the price, and I put it back down. And then I went, okay, well, I still need the butter, so I picked it back up. And I'm like, what am I going to not buy today so I can afford this yeah. incredibly expensive butter? Um, beef. I was walking through Costco. I, I was set off the top of the show going to Costco. Um, you know where I go in with the list. I'm a very specific shopper. I I, I try and keep to my budget. And I bought what I would have bought three months ago, and it was a 20% increase at, at the till in the end. And, and yeah. one of the things I think that played into it, though, was the proteins as well. The, the beef prices, holy moly, I'm, I'm over my steaks. I'm over. Well, steaks. and you know what? It's, it's actually, it could get worse for beef because we just learned today that uh, Brazil uh, just got a BSC case. There's an embargo on Brazil, so less 
less beef on the world market. And uh, in the U.S., they're dealing with extreme weather patterns, which means that they're losing a lot of inventory. So right. that's pushing prices higher. I'm not saying that beef will get even more expensive in the next few weeks, but I we are because of what's going on right now, we are expecting beef prices to jump in the fall. So if you're a beef lover right now, I'd stock up because it may actually go up. Those are the kinds of things that people need to know. I mean, it's yeah. a global market, and prices here are impacted by global markets. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. And Sylvain, you and I have talked about this before, but I think it bears bringing up again because I want to also talk about it from the dairy perspective as well because we were just talking about expensive butter. Um, But the bread price-fixing scandal that, as you've told us numerous times, has never truly been resolved, has it? It's unfinished business. Really, the, the, the investigation started back in 2015, and it's not over. That's, that's a big problem. So on the one side, Canadians were insulted learning that several companies may have broken the law. Actually, two of them admitted that they broke the law, gave us $25, and got immunity for it. Yeah. And we're still waiting for the investigation to conclude and so far, nothing, and 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 that's that that's providing baggage to this whole issue of food inflation for sure. So it's tough for Canadians to trust anybody at this point because of what has happened. And there's been some rumors of price fixing related to salmon, to uh, meat packing. Uh, there's lots of different verticals that have been subject to uh, to accusations and speculations and. And that's why Canadians are, are, have every right to be a little bit upset here. Yeah, it stokes the, the distrust, right? And then when we're watching, I'm sure you saw the viral video of the uh, Canadian dairy farmer that broke with the ranks and, and filmed the dumping of thousands, tens of thousands of liters of milk because he was uh, beyond his quota and yep. you know, not allowed to even provide that viable resource to people in Canada who are going without. It's not that we don't have enough dairy to go around. In fact, we have too much for it to be profitable in the way. How does that all work? And and how do we how do we equate that pr- process, that program, or those rules with the needs of of people living at or below the poverty line? They're not even allowed to donate that. Well, yeah, so the farmer's name is Jerry Hagan, and uh, he was very upset and, and, frankly, he pointed to a very big problem related to the quota system that we have in Canada. Uh, now, other dairy farmers downplayed the video, saying that he was incompetent, uh, he had a surplus he shouldn't have, but the reality is that we actually dump anywhere between 100 million to 300 million liters of milk every single year in Canada, it's a problem. Supply management can help. It's the perfect system to eliminate farm gate waste. All we need is a strategy. You just charge the Cane Dairy Commission with the task of creating a strategic reserve for milk, buttered, powdered milk. We have a strategic reserve for butter. Why not for powdered milk? Uh, we, sh- we need a processing facility and a plan to export. That's all we need. 
and of course, we need capital investments. But without right. any of that, farmers are just going to continue to dump. It's the easiest thing to do, unfortunately. Unfortunately, indeed. Well, we see that from a grocer's perspective as well. The the best before dates or the the fruits and vegetables that aren't as pretty as they might be. Uh, the, the amount of food that goes to waste daily, weekly, monthly, yearly in this country is pretty astounding, is it not? Absolutely. And so we do waste a lot. Actually, we are the worst in the world. Uh, wow. We waste for, yeah, we waste for about 160 kilos of food a year, each and every one of us. That's a, that's a lot of, that's a lot of food. And, and so the average family in British Columbia, for example, will waste anywhere between twenty-five to $3,000 worth of food every year for this year. So if you offset, if you, if you're careful with food waste, there's obviously avoidable food waste and unavoidable food waste like uh, bones and and peels and things like that. But when you look at the avoidable food waste, you can actually offset the impact of inflation this year right. and the following year as well. So, and, and the only way to do it, there are two things. Make sure you, you manage your inventory properly at home. Don't buy things you already have and eat what you have. Don't, if you bulk buy, you'll probably end up wasting too much. And the second thing, the best before dates, as you, as you mentioned earlier, if, you're, if your immune system is strong uh, and you're not too concerned about your health, uh, those best before days doesn't necessarily mean bad after. Just, just basically trust your senses and you can save a lot of money. The other day, I actually opened up a bottle of ketchup that was the, the, the date, the package date on it was five years old. No problem. Right. No problem. We should be trusting our noses, right? We should be... Our, our taste buds and our, our sense of smell are our best defense against uh, foods that have turned, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, this weekend I went to uh, a store and saw cauliflower at 50% discount, organic cauliflower. It was, it was packaged three days ago. There was, there was actually some, uh, some condensation in the package, but the cauliflower was perfectly fine. We actually we had a nice stir fry on Saturday night, and the cauliflower Perfect. cost me a dollar ninety nine. Oh wow, that's a deal. That you roast that, yeah. it's just fine. Little olive oil, salt, and pepper goes a long exactly. way. I'm I'm famous for exactly. my kitchen sink bolognese. You chop everything small enough, simmer it on the back of the stove <laughs> with some good some good tomatoes, and nobody will know what's in there. The kids will never exactly. know. It'll taste delicious. Hey, Sylvain, before so I let you go, you, you've got a new report that's coming out on, was, is it March the 9th? I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, the yeah, report about actually, uh, yeah. the food guys. Tell it's us. About tell the, us. Yeah, it's about the food guide. Uh, so as you know, four years ago, we had a, we got ourselves a new food guide. And uh, what we decided to do because of what's, what has happened around the world in recent years, we wanted to evaluate which food guide was the cheapest, the old one, or the new one. So stay tuned. Okay, well, stay tuned for that. As always, we appreciate your time. I know how busy you are, but thank you. Your perspective is always so enlightening. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Jody Vanson for Jill. And our next discussion is going to dive straight into actual science because we are connecting with a microbiologist who has a specialty in studying emerging pathogens. Think 
COVID-19. Think this is not his first pandemic. You've heard him on the airwaves here at CKNW before. He is Jason Tetro. He is a podcaster. He is an author. And he is has this innate ability to explain the incredibly complex in a simple way that people like me can understand him. So I wanted to tap in today with Jason before opening phones and getting to your calls, of course, because that wouldn't be fair if I kept him all to myself. But I want to talk H5N1. Jason Tetro, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. Again, always a pleasure. H5N1 or bird flu or avian flu. Uh, Mm -hmm. seeing headlines rolling by this weekend, a big headline on uh, CBC News Network, actually, that said a Cambodian child, an 11-year-old child, had died Mm -hmm. from avian flu. And and then the World Health Organization concerns over it, the Canadian government's concerns over it. It started to feel, I could feel my post-traumatic COVID stress, or not even post, but traumatic COVID stress (laughs) amping up again. How worried should we be right now about H5N1? Uh, not. And it, oh, it, th- that, that's really the issue. Um, H5N1 was first discovered in 1997. And for me, I learned about it uh, January of 1998 because there was all of a sudden uh, some cases in Hong Kong. Um, we call that the sphincter moment. Oh my goodness, avian flu is in humans. This is not good. And then we spent the next number of years watching H5N1, and then there was an outbreak in 2003 that was very concerning, but it didn't really go anywhere. And then there was another one in 2005, and it didn't really go anywhere. And then 2014, and then it didn't really go anywhere. Um, And so now here we are in 2023, and we're having a few cases in humans, but the thing that is really concerning for the World Health Organization and for even, you know, the BCCDC who wrote an entire paper on this last year is not necessarily the human component, but the animal component because of the economic impact that this has on flocks. And, and, and for those of you who are wondering why you couldn't get a turkey last year for Thanksgiving, that would have been the reason. So from a public health human health perspective, it's not a really big deal. But in terms of economic and animal health, it definitely is a huge concern. So when we're talking about bird flu, and because back in 97, as you said, or 98, was it 98 that we were yeah. able to get the vaccine? Or it was H, H1N1. Am I confusing H5N2. my... H5N2. Okay, so you're talking... Take me through. Yeah, so there was an H5N2 that was vaccinated against chickens. And that really helped. Uh, that was the, the one they did in Mexico. And that was actually around back in 1976. But anyway, long story short, <laughs> there are vaccines for chickens, um, right. but not for H5N1. Now, we have always had H1N1, H3N2 vaccines that have been available since 2006. Those are the ones that you get every year. Okay. Right. okay. The H5N1 is the avian that really only attacks avian and a number of different mammalian species that are not humans. And we can get into that if you want a bit later. We don't have a vaccine for that yet. But as far back as 2008, when I was writing about this in the journals, we were looking at how we could develop a vaccine. So it continues to be a priority. We just haven't gotten there yet. And until we have a large outbreak or epidemic of this particular virus in humanity, don't expect it to come anywhere near as fast as the SARS-CoV-2 vaccines came around. So the clickbait, the headlines, 
the fear mongering, <laughs> the the elevation of my personal blood blood pressure. If I might be so mm-hmm. narcissistic that it is affecting me, Jason. It's like, what mm-hmm. is it about these clickbaity headlines? Then is is it is it a lack of knowledge on it? Is it are we just following sort of the stories as they pop up everywhere? Um, because it sounds to me from what you're saying is. We can remain calm. It might impact, mm-hmm. and it has already impacted our our food supply chain to some degree. But when oh, yeah, I put absolutely. out, I put out, you know, bird seed for the snow event over the winter when we got the big run of snow and really cold temperatures here in mm-hmm. in the Lower Mainland and in, in South Coast of BC. And I put out bird seed, and my Twitter blew up with people. Don't put out bird seed. Yeah. Oh my God, everybody's gonna die. So what? Mm-hmm. Where are we at with that? What does the WHO think of all of this? Well, the WHO, as well as the BCCDC, call it a low probability but potentially high impact type of virus. In other words, there's almost no chance that humans are going to get this unless they have very, very close contact with infected animals. And even then, we've seen it in some of the mink farms where the H5N1 is going and we're not seeing anyone getting infected from it. So the reason for all of this is very, very simple. Um, we, you have to have a door to get into the cells, right? And, and, and the virus has to somehow have a key for that door. It okay. has the key for the birds, doesn't have the key for humans. That's why. And, and so how did the kid in does, Cambodia get it? Because at the very, very bottom part of our lungs, we still have some of the old evolutionary doors, And so it's only a a little, little, little bit. So if you manage to get that virus all the way down there, and when we were sort of looking at this back in 2003, people were sleeping with their pets or sleeping with their animals, and that's how it was happening. And so these people are are in very, very close contact with these infected animals, and they're taking in all these deep breaths, and they're kissing them and everything like that, and that actually gets into the lower lungs. And then it finds those few doors that are there— and as soon as that hits that door, then it's a major problem. But as you also probably heard from the news reports, um, the girl had numerous contacts with other individuals. Nobody got infected except for the father. And this, too, was a positive, but it didn't actually show any symptoms. So you can tell it's very, very, very hard to get. And it's very, very, very hard to transmit. Okay, so you've you've come to the nerves a little here because it felt like these headlines were growing and growing in a way that we sort of felt growth in 2020 around this time. It was like, wait a minute. We are, we are a little hypersensitive. I get that. And, and it's quite funny because for people like me, when all of a sudden H5N1 is all over the headlines, I'm like, what? (laughs) We've known about that virus since like 2014. Why are people getting all, oh, right. COVID. And so, yes, I understand that people are very hypersensitive about this. um, And it's a very, very complex issue to understand how this virus infects and how it kills. But at the end of the day, that's why I'm here. So if you want to make some calls and ask me these questions, I'm happy to answer them. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. The phone lines are lighting up to chat with one of our all-time favorite guests here on the program, Jason Tetro, the microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19, a touchstone for us throughout the last three years of what we've all collectively experienced, but is able to speak to any of your scientific 
queries and questions. And before we do get to the phone lines, as I said, they're letting up 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell. Jason, I want to tackle the new-ish news that is coming out, the new COVID lab leak assessment that reignites the uh, furor <laughs> over pandemic origins and the 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 low confidence assessment that COVID-19 uh, could have mm-hmm. come from a laboratory leak. How do you consume this news? Well, if someone said to you in low confidence anything, what's the likelihood you're going to believe them, right? And right. this is one of those situations where we now know that there is a particular party, p- political party, who currently runs the um, House of Representatives and therefore the budget. And if you want to be nice to those individuals, then you're going to have to act nice in some of your assessments. So if you've got a no real impact assessment, such as, well, we have very low confidence, but we think it could be this, and it's going to get you a hearing to get you more money, why not go for it? Why not? Okay, Ben Dooley, our producer, just posted something in our uh, G chat that I got to get out here. Just before we get to the phones, Bruce, I'm coming to you in Aldergrove. Uh, people with children aged six months to four years are advised that Canada's current supply of the infant Moderna mRNA COVID-19 vaccine expires March 8th. So BC does not yet have a confirmed date for the arrival of a new supply of the infant Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. So uh, parents or guardians who have booked appointments for their children aged six months to four years for a vaccine between March 9th and April 10th, you will expect to be contacted to discuss options for rebooking again. So stay tuned for that. Now let's go to the phones. Bruce and Aldergrove, you're up first for Jason Tetro. Welcome. Oh, thank you. And thanks for taking my call. Um, I, too, would like to be uh, feeding our uh, local backyard birds uh, in this uh, cold weather some uh, some suet. But I've been holding off because of uh, concern that uh, the chance of spreading the avian flu to uh, local poultry farms uh, is at a very high risk. If you have migratory birds that might be coming from China, then yes. But the most likely peop, uh, birds that you're probably feeding are sparrows and finches and maybe the occasional blue jay, which I don't think you have anything to worry about. So we're good to feed our birds. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, the whole idea of not feeding your birds really was this idea that migratory birds such as ducks and geese would come into your backyard and start eating. And those are the ones that end up actually passing this virus on. Um, but if you want, you can just go to your usual bird atlas and find out where these birds happen to hang out. And if they're not traveling across oceans and across continents, there's a very low likelihood that they're going to have this virus. Good news for us. Hey, Bruce. Absolutely. I'll, I'll get my suet feeder out there this afternoon. <laughs> Excellent. We love to help. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> the birds will be loving us. Okay, let's go to, is it Carol in Vancouver? Yes. Hi. Hi. Um, I just, hi. I just wanted to ask about the COVID vaccines. Um, so my girls and I, they're 21, 20, and I'm almost 50. And um, mm-hmm. we've had three doses of our vaccine. None of us want to do our fourth vaccine. And I'm just mm-hmm. wondering... How necessary is it? How much protection do we have? When will this protection wear out? Great question. Right. Great question. Um, have you ha- have you heard of the Kraken, the XBB 1.5 that everyone's afraid of? Well, I don't know. I'm trying not to. The latest to variant. Well, yes. And that's the whole point, right? Like we were all afraid of it. It was all over the news and then suddenly kind of went away, right? Well, the whole thing is that those lineages that are coming out 
are related to the most recent version of the uh, of the booster, Omicron. which has oh, the four yeah. five in it. So if you want to have some cross protection against anything that's coming down the road, then I would recommend that you get the four five booster. Um, but again, you know, the, these these strains and, and these lineages are coming and going just like the common cold now. So it's one of those issues where it's really a, a personal choice. I'm always going to say go for the vaccine because that's what I believe. But at the end of the day, I also know that it's now becoming more of a personal issue than it is a mandatory issue, unless you happen to be a healthcare worker, at which point <laughs> you got to get the vaccine. Carol, are you and your girls otherwise healthy? It definitely. Absolutely. Um, I work from home. My girls are social, much more social than I am. And it was more so for them. But they're saying, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's hard. They're adults. And it's hard for yeah. me to say, um, you know, you have to do this or give them, you know, just opinions about why they should when they're coming back and saying, oh, you know, what if like fertility later on down the road or cancers? Oh, yeah, you know, no, all no, of no, none oh. of that stuff. None of that stuff applies. Here's the thing. And I think everyone has to hear this. The second dose was the one that was causing all the problems. And the reason the second dose was causing the problems was twofold. One, it was too high of a concentration. And two, it was being given too early. Remember how we had to distance ourselves, put that interval in between the first and the second dose, and everyone was like crying, going, oh my gosh, that's a public experiment. Oh, la, la, la. Well, believe it or not, that's what we had to do. We had to give it at least eight to 12 weeks because we were doing it too soon at three weeks. And that's what was causing all the problems. So what's happened is that we've elongated the distance between the shots up to six months. But we've also said we're going to reduce the amount that we're giving people so that we don't have any of these issues. So any of those things that you may have heard about that you probably continue to hear about are, are so 2020 that you don't need to worry about them anymore. So let's just be clear on that, Jason. COVID-19 vaccinations do not put in jeopardy your fertility. No, um, n- not at all. And, and even for those who um, may have thought that, you know, they, they did all these studies on them, what ended up happening was that the cycle was extended by about a day. And there's a really complicated reason as to why this happens, but it comes down to inflammation. And the inflammation is caused by the body's reaction to the vaccine. And so if you lower the dose, you lower the inflammation, therefore you don't have the problem. Very important to know the details behind this. So Carol, thank you for your phone call. I think you help people by asking a straight up question like that. While it is personal choice, getting that most Mm -hmm. recent bivalent vaccination has been the advice that I received uh, as a unicorn who has yet to contract COVID-19 people that have uh, had a couple of vaccines and have also contracted the virus have what you call that Mm -hmm. hybrid immunity, right? So I got the most recent, yeah, I got the most recent bivalent vaccination that was the Omicron one. And I feel really good about that. I feel like things can become a little bit more normal and, but we're going to get it. It's going to be like the flu, right? That's the thing is that um, unless we keep going down this Omicron path, at which point we're going to develop a universal and then you're only going to get one and never have to worry about it again, which is kind of our hope. But if it does end up doing the changes like we see with other coronaviruses, then yeah, we'll probably end up having a yearly vaccine, not of every two month vaccine for those people who are concerned. It's going to be every year and it would be about the same time as you would see the flu. And they're doing that in the UK right now, by the way. That's why you Thanks for everything, as always, Jason. We're up against the clock, and I could talk to you for another hour uh, on this. I appreciate your perspective, <laughs> my friend. 